morning, hey, we're going to start studying the book of 1 Corinthians. And I am so excited about this book. And I was, I was just reading through the book, and, and I was thinking about a, a lot of friends I know, uh, diff- different pastors, who when I look at the things that they've preached, they haven't preached through 1 Corinthians. And sometimes people will grab like certain passages because the book of 1 Corinthians is full of such incredibly important things like these passages that you just go to all the time, but it's also full of some controversial things, challenging things. And so I think about, okay, I I get why some people uh, skip this. So we are going to go through all of it. We're going to look at everything that God says, and we are going to be challenged and stretched, and it's just going to be so good. The the theme for the whole book of 1 Corinthians is... um, the, the way we're going to describe it is that it's real-life gospel living. One of the things that you see in 1 Corinthians is the priority on the gospel and on salvation and what that means. But when you, when you read the book of 1 Corinthians and you think about the church in Corinth, you realize that it's real life. Man, it is messy. Um, some people title this messy grace. And the... The bottom line when it comes to the book of 1 Corinthians is that the reason I love it is because our lives are all messy, right? I mean, our lives, we live real life. We're not living an ideal life where everything is perfect. We struggle. We have challenges. People that we know and love struggle and have challenges. And that was the 1 Corinthian church. So um, when we think about that, I am super excited about it. Now, the Corinthian church and the Corinthians, they had all kinds of problems. And some of their problems were just related to, like, their sinful past and changing habits and coming to Christ later in life. And so they just had all these struggles that kind of remained in their life. A lot of their struggles came because they didn't actually know the truth. They didn't believe the truth about things. And so Paul writes... Um, to talk to them, and it's amazing, 1 Corinthians is full of doctrine. And Paul talks about what are the things that we are supposed to believe, what is actually true in life and about God, and how is that supposed to display itself or result in our lives. And so the Corinthian church, they believed the wrong things, and therefore they did the wrong things. And uh, we've got to be really careful as believers that we actually are knowing and learning the truth because um, if we don't believe and know the truth, that will impact the way we live. So when you think about the problems, man, they had all kinds of problems. One of the things in the Corinthian church is they did not understand the role of God and man in salvation. They lacked love. They had the ability to be both judgmental and passive towards sin. You know, it's like you you say, I don't want to be judgmental. I also don't want to be passive towards sin. I want to be somewhere in the middle. And sometimes people end up on one side or the other. The Corinthian church managed to get it wrong on by going to both ends and not being where they should be. There was disunity couched in spiritual pride. They rejected their spiritual leaders. They were suing each other in the church. There was all kinds of compromise in the lives of these believers, a lot of sexual immorality. Uh, They misunderstood marriage. The single people were having sex and the married people were not having sex. Single people were being told, you can't get married. And other ones were being told they had to get married. Married people wanted to divorce because they were miserable and they felt like my life and my spouse, our lives are headed a different direction and we want out. Um, They were not properly managing their testimony in their unbelieving community. The role of men and women is messed up in this church. And by the way, that's one of the most difficult chapters or sections in this book. Um, They were sick and dying because they were irreverent as they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Um, They did not understand love. Um, They had spiritual gifts, but they didn't understand the spiritual gift. Uh, Sometimes they used their spiritual gifts in a supernatural, powerful way. Other times, the expressions of what they thought were spiritual gifts were satanic and demonic. And the problem with the church is they couldn't tell the difference between Satan 
presenting himself and speaking to them through their spiritual gifts and the genuine use of God's spiritual gifts in people's lives. So they were confused. Um, Paul's solution to all of these problems in their lives was theology. He basically writes to them and he just says, hey, what does God say about these things? What's true? And how does understanding the truth fix all these problems? It is so rich. This book is so rich. It is so encouraging. It, it is a focus on the gospel, on love. It's throughout the whole book. A love for God, a love for other people, serving each other, being generous. And uh, this church, man, they were saved. The, the people in this church were saved out of tremendous sin in the middle of one of the most wicked cities on earth. And God was so... Um, powerfully working and Paul was so excited and so thankful about what he saw happening in the church. Like if you were to look at all the churches in the New Testament, the Philippian church, they were the ones who loved Paul that were so encouraging. And you might look at the Corinthian church and say, man, they must have been a thorn in his side. You know, they're complaining about him and there was all these problems. But Paul was excited about the Corinthian church. He was so amazed. And when you think about all the problems that the church struggled with, None of it was surprising. It's what you would expect from where they came from. And Paul looked at the Corinthian church and just said, man, this is an amazing church. And so we're going to see how he deals with that theologically. Here's an interesting thing. Um, the Corinthian, uh, 1 Corinthians was not the first book written in the New Testament. It's about number four. But 1 Corinthians is so popular it was so well used in the New Testament period that probably before John writes Revelation, the last book written, in the, in the first century of the church, fa church fathers are already quoting and citing this book. In fact, this book is so well used. There's, there's tons of, of uh, you know, critics that like to look at New Testament books and go, oh, I don't think this was really written by this person or that, this is a fake book. And, and, and there's so much criticism uh, toward books in the New Testament. First Corinthians gets none because the evidence for First Corinthians is so powerful. In fact, one person said, anybody who questions the authorship of First Corinthians or any of the historical details about it doesn't bring any question on the book of 1 Corinthians. It just questions their skill as a critic. I mean, it is so blatant and so obvious. And so I would just say, why was this book so popular and so well used? Why did it flourish? And I, I just think it's because all of us need what's in here. And it is so encouraging and such an incredible blessing. And so uh, we're going to be digging into this book today, and I'm excited about that. We're going to be looking at the first nine verses. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. And Paul is going to open up this book, uh, this letter to the Corinthians. And he's going to open it up by basically answering two questions. And we'll have three points this morning, but he's going to answer two questions. And the, question, the questions that he's going to answer are what makes you a Christian and what keeps you a Christian? What makes you a Christian? What keeps you a Christian? And in the middle of that, uh, the first part's kind of two. God's going to call us into salvation. God is going to pour out his grace in his life and in our lives. And part of being a Christian is having God's grace. So those are our first two points. The last one has to do with security. How is it that we end up in heaven? Why does that happen? Where does our confidence about that lie? And it's kind of interesting when Paul writes to the Corinthian church that that's what he says. Here, what's the theology of your salvation? And what saves you and what keeps you saved? That's his, that's his opening to this church. And there's going to be a lot of really good things that we'll look, look at in this book. One of the things that I think is great and that is so encouraging is that these, uh, these Corinthians, man, they, they actually write Paul a letter asking questions. And the first uh, six chapters in the book is Paul 
um, actually responding to a report that he gets about the church and all their problems. And then from 7 to 16 is Paul answering their questions. They're, they're writing him and saying, man, we're struggling. We don't know what to do. So you have these new believers that are creating, having all kinds of difficulty, but they want help. And when Paul writes to them and when he tells them, this is what God says, this is what you should believe, this is what you should think, one of the things that you see is they start <laughs> obeying what Paul says. And uh, sometimes they take what he says too far. And then so he's got to write in 2 Corinthians to go, no, when I said this, I didn't mean that. <laughs> you got to now do this. And, but just what a great thing. People who struggled, people who were having personal problems, who were saying, God, I want to know what's true. I want to know what's right, and I'm going to do it. Um, that is the Corinthian church, and I just think that is spectacular. That's why we're going to go through 1 Corinthians. So just to start with, um, I want to actually just read to you um, when the Corinthian church was planted. How did it get started? So I know I told you to go to 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9, but uh, let me change that. Um, go to Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. We're going to read a few verses here and see some really important things that will help us understand this church. Now, while you're going there, the Apostle Paul, he plants the church on his, first, on his second missionary journey. So Paul goes on these journeys, and he's preaching, and he's planting churches. And so it's his second trip that he plants a second or plants a Corinthian church, and then he actually visits them again on his third missionary journey. And um, so you could see that yellow arrow pointed there. That's the city of Corinth. And um, one of the things about this city is it was really, um, it was right there in the middle. You can kind of see in the top there how it's like this little narrow piece of land. And what happened was this city was incredibly sinful, incredibly rich, uh, they had everything. And so one of the things that happened is people would travel right through Corinth because they would be going up and down. The people that were on land would travel. But people who had boats actually would also go through. They got all of the trade. And they would actually take boats, and they would go across that little area there, and they would just roll boats across. Instead of sailing them hundreds of mi miles around dangerous areas, they would just take their boats and roll them across the land to the other side. And in fact, even in, uh, shortly after Paul's time, uh, some, of the, some of the rulers of that area were actually trying to dig a trench so that boats could float across. And, and just so you know, in the 1800s, about a, a, probably about a little less than 100 years ago, they actually finished uh, this, this passage through there. So ships use that today. So this city was rich. I was known for its sinfulness. Like you think about Sodom and Gomorrah. You think about uh, Las Vegas, Sin City. That was Corinth. And that's part of what helps us understand it. So let's read a little bit here. And we're going to see some things that you're going to really just love when we read through our passage. So this is the description of the church being started. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Hey, we've heard these people. We're going to start in the Corinthian church. There's like this association with these people who are really well-known in Scripture. So we got Priscilla and Aquila. Anybody know what they did? What are they known for? They helped out Apollos, right? They sat down with Apollos, this mighty man in the scriptures. That's interesting because he's associated with uh, the Corinthian church too. He goes on and he says um, that they had come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And when he went to see them, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So the Apostle Paul is there, and he wants the Jews to get saved. Those were all the people with the right theology. They believed the Old Testament. They believed that there was one God. And, and so they were Jews, but they weren't saved. 
even though if you gave them a theology test, they would have got it all right. They weren't Christians. And he was reasoning with them, and he was trying to help them come to know the Lord. And he was preaching to the Gentiles, all the prostitutes and the people worshiping Diana and all the wickedness and sinfulness. And he's just he's trying to share the gospel with them, and he's doing it every Saturday. And the rest of the work he, week, he's working. So he didn't have as much time um, there. But look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, this is the Philippian church. Remember, we went through them. They were so generous. They were poor, and they took up this offering, and they sent it to Paul so that he could minister to the Corinthians who were rich. The poor church financing the ministry of the rich church. And Paul tells us that um, in Corinth, their attitude was so bad he wouldn't take money from them. Because he says, I don't want you to ever question why I'm doing what I'm doing. So he actually let the Philippians pay him to minister to them. So it says here in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So he quits just ministering on Saturday and starts ministering all week when they show up with this gift from the Philippian church. And it says that, um, he, it goes on in verse 6, it says, And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And so Paul's preaching to the Jews, God's chosen people, and they're rejecting him. The religious people, the people who should know, the people who would get the right grades on the theology test, hated him. And he finally says, okay, I'm not going to preach to you anymore. Your blood's on your own head. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And I'm sure that really upset them. And so it says here in verse 7, and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Paul goes into this wicked city and it's kind of amazing. The Jews hate Paul. They're rejecting Paul. And God sticks him next door to the synagogue. You ever think about that? God stuck you in your neighborhood. And God's intention is that you reach the person who lives next door. That you reach the person who lives across the street. Evangelism is not for us to go stand on a street corner and hold up a sign. I'm not saying that's not evangelism or that that's bad. Evangelism is not going on some trip somewhere else to someone else. Evangelism is right where you live with the people that you know. And when God sticks Paul there, the leader of the synagogue gets saved. And... Uh, then he's preaching to all these wicked people who would hate God, who would never come to Christ. I mean, go to, go to Las Vegas and go to the street. Go find all the prostitutes on the streets. Go find the people who are committed to their, their just corruption and, and gambling and just all the things that are going on. Go to the most sinful, difficult areas and preach there and see those people changed and coming to Christ. Man, no wonder Paul loves this church so much because he's thinking about, look at these people, look how messed up their lives are, people that you would think could never get saved. And then he preaches to them and they come to know the Lord. And so that's part of why he loves this church. And that's what God wants from us is that we have a ministry like that. And, uh, but it's a tough ministry it says that his whole household believes, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, this, this is kind of an amazing thing. You think about this and what hinders you from evangelism. He says, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Um, 
you know, when Paul's leaving the Ephesian elders, <laughs> this prophet ties himself up with a belt and says, hey, God's telling me that this is what's going to happen to you where you're going, that he's going to be beaten. And um, Paul looks at these Ephesians. He's like, hey, I know you guys love me, but just, just so you know, not only am I willing to be beaten for the gospel, I'm willing to die. And then he heads off, and they're crying because they love Paul, and they know he's headed off into suffering. And so Paul's like one of these courageous people that just always does the right thing. But God has to say to him, Paul, don't be afraid. I'm not going to let anybody hurt you. Um, This is a difficult place of ministry. And it says in verse 11 that he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was uh, proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, and they brought him before the tribunal. So God tells them, <laughs> don't be afraid. Nobody's going to hurt you. And then they, they, the Jews get together, and I'm sure Paul's like, God, I thought you said you were going to protect me. And then they take him and they drag him in front of Galileo, and uh, they start to make their charges against Paul. And uh, as soon as he hears it, <laughs> he just says, um, yeah, this is about religious stuff, and you shouldn't be bringing anybody to me. And so then immediately, what happens? Does Paul get hurt at all? No. Uh, verse 18, chapter 18, verse 17, and they all seize Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal, and Galileo paid no attention to any of this. So the guy, the, the synagogue leader that's bringing Paul before this council, um, he goes there, and God just turns things around. And the guy who's bringing him just gets beat. Like, everybody just starts beating him. And the governor's like, yeah, I don't even care. Don't, don't bother me with your religious stuff. <laughs> okay. That's Sosthenes. By the way, the last synagogue leader got saved, right? He believed in his whole house. So now this is the next synagogue leader. Um, okay. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. We're going to meet this Sosthenes guy again. The guy who got beat. Amazing story. Okay, so as we look at this <clears throat> and we think about um, our calling, uh, Paul's going to say, how would you get saved? And what we're going to find out is that we are saved by God's calling. God calls us into salvation. And so Paul's going to start by talking about God's call. And so we're going to look at that. And um, let me just read it. Uh, let's read the first two verses. 1 Corinthians 1, 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. This is the guy who the, the next uh, synagogue leader who got beat is now with Paul, probably the one actually whose hand wrote 1 Corinthians. And so that's Paul, and he's writing to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all of those who believe um, in every place, who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. A couple quick uh, observations here. Paul is called as an apostle. So God saves Paul. He's called him, and it's according to God's will, and God has made him an apostle. So God saved Paul for a reason, and just so you know, God saved you for a reason. That word for call, um, I used to think that, I used to only think about it in terms of ministry, that if you're called, that you're called into ministry. It's your commission. It's your purpose. And in Romans 8 where it says, God works everything to the good of those who are called according to his purpose. I always used to think that means anybody who's called into ministry. But then when you read that Romans passage, what you realize is in Romans, it's not talking about a special call into ministry. It's call, talking about the call of salvation. But actually, every single person who is called to salvation is called into ministry. 
uh, maybe not as a pastor, but wherever God puts you. So have you thought about the fact that your life has a purpose? God saved you for a reason. And are you pursuing that the way God would have you do it? An apostle just means one who's sent. And what's significant about this is that when Paul speaks and when Paul writes, he does it with God's authority. And so that's a significant thing to the church of God that is in Corinth. That's this wicked city to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So sanctification is what happens. It's what Jesus does in our life. He sanctifies us. Now, sanctification, there's justification. That's being right before God. There's sanctification, which is a process. That's the process of becoming righteous. But what's interesting here is this is not talking about a process. It says you are sanctified. In other words, made holy, made righteous. This is not dependent on their life. Like if you read 1 Corinthians, you know anything about them, they are wicked, sinful people. They're not living out up to who they are in Christ. But Paul doesn't attach sanctification to them or their life. He attaches it to the work of Christ. So he's talking about the fact that they're saved. Let me just show you this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, just says this. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we who have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And this sanctification is something that happens next in a person's life. It's something that God will bring to completion in heaven. But Paul's just looking at this and saying, you are sanctified. You know, just another thing about sanctification. And, and Paul's like being specific here about the gospel and he does this all over. Did you know that if you're trying to be justified by works, you're not a Christian? Um, people who are confused about whether or not works get you into heaven, you are not a Christian if you think your behavior gets you into heaven. People who teach that works get you into heaven are teaching a false gospel. Look what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. He says this, he says, uh, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, here's the interesting thing about Paul. Um, he circumcised Timothy because he was traveling with them and he was taking him into synagogues. So it is not the act of circumcision that condemns a person to hell. But if you're a Jew and you are trying to do these religious works, and that's what Paul's talking about here, if you are being circumcised to try to obey the law and you think that that is going to get you into heaven, Christ is of no value to you. Our standing before Jesus is based on the work of Christ. If you are trying to work it yourself, Christ, you get nothing from him. It goes on. And he says in verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. When Paul's writing to the Galatians, Jesus says, if you're confused and you think that your behavior gets you into heaven, you're not saved. You're severed from Christ. There's no value of Christ for you. You better be perfect and keep the whole law, which can't be done. See, we live in a world where people are confused about some of these things, but God just says, no, um, we are saved by the work of Christ. goes on to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So 
Um, they're called, they're sanctified, and saints is just a noun way of saying sanctified. It means holy, a holy person. And we've all heard about saints, and um, every true Christian is a saint. And what's interesting is that there's, a, the, the, there's we know the Catholic Church, they have this thing where if somebody did a miracle, and, and there's these, if they're righteous enough, and if there's been five years from the time that they've died, that the church can canonize them as a saint. And then we have these saints that we talk to and we ask them to talk to God for us. Um, I'll just tell you, <laughs> that is so unbiblical. Um, that's to, to talk to a dead person, which is what a saint is, a dead person. To think that a dead person can somehow help you. Um, to pray to a dead person about, can you intercede for me? Did you, you know who prays for you? God himself prays for you. The Trinity prays for you. So Jesus is our advocate. He's praying for us. The Holy Spirit prays for us. And so you've got like, they're praying to the Father. The Trinity itself are praying to each other for us. We don't rely on dead people for that. And, and so that's just one of those things that if you're a Christian, you're a saint, and anybody who's trusting saints or they're trusting Mary and they just feel like, oh, man, if I, if I pray to Mary, then I'll get into heaven because, or, or she'll help me because God will listen to his mom. Um, praying to dead people is wrong. Read the Old Testament. We don't pray to people who are dead. We don't seek to speak to the dead. Um, that's idolatry. It's idol worship. Um, and when you think about, like, just even the doctrine about what it takes to become a saint, um, how about Moses? <laughs> he was the most humble man on earth. Okay, there's a righteous guy. Uh, what about all the miracles that he did in the Old Testament? What about Elijah? He was a good guy. Look at all the miracles he did. What about Elisha? He did all the miracles. Show me where in the New Testament it says we should pray to them. And so that's just one of those doctrines that is so incredibly harmful, um, along with all the other doctrines that go along with those things. And so what we see here is that we are saved because of God's calling in our life. And so I want to just explain what calling is. Basically, the word for called is used in two ways in the New Testament. It can be used as a label. It's like labeling something. Um, the city was called Corinth, like it's labeled. It can also be used in the sense of summoning and bringing somebody. And in this passage, it is used in the sense of summoning. God is not labeling you a saint. God is summoning you to be a saint. He is summoning you into salvation. That's what it means to be called. And so when we look at this, um, a, a lot of times people struggle with the doctrine of election and God's choosing and, and what does it mean to be called and how does that work with free will. And, and, and this is, I'll just tell you, there are some things that I've read in Scripture that have been a challenge to me. They've been very difficult. This was one of those. Now, the first time I read this in Scripture and the first time I heard it, it was so incredibly troubling to me. And it was troubling what I realized later and the more I read Scripture it was troubling because I didn't actually understand it. I, I thought that God summoning me, God predestining me, meant I had no influence in life, that I didn't actually make a real choice, that, that I was just the life, I was just a robot, and God just did things, and God's sovereign over everything, and everything that happens in the world, we have this vague perception like what we do matters, but the truth is nothing we do matters. God's just sovereign in control, and he's made decisions before I was even born about whether or not I'm going to come to know the Lord. So why does anything I ever do matter? So difficult for me. And I realized that half of my struggle came because I didn't understand it. I didn't understand all the things God said about it. The other half came <laughs> because I didn't like what God said. And so what I've come to realize is that Man, we need to make sure that we are working hard to actually understand what God says. But if God says something that we don't like, <laughs> we need to change. Uh, we don't just pick our favorite doctrine. We don't just reject things because we don't like them. 
And, and the doctrine of election, the doctrine of God choosing, doesn't mean you don't make a real choice. Now, the Bible's really clear that we make real choices, that the choices we make affect life. He's very clear about that. But also, when you look at these doctrines, they affect the way we think about life, the way we think about evangelism, the way we think about people. So I just want to show you Romans chapter 8 says this, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. That's just a way of saying if you're a Christian, if God has chosen you, if he has called you to himself, if he has summoned you, that he is going to work everything in life for your good. It's not just this random theology. It's, it's a truth. It is theology that impacts the way we see life, the way we think about life. And he's going to go on and he's going to say this. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, God knew you in advance. He knew you personally before you were ever made. He foreknew you. So he knew you in advance. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Some people say, I don't believe in predestination. I say, read your Bible. The, the more theologically educated people don't say, I don't believe in predestination. They redefine predestination. Um, but it just says that God predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So first God knows you in advance. Then God predestines you. And then God summons you. He calls you. And then the people that he calls, he justifies. That's to make you right before God. And those whom he justifies, he glorifies. So if God foreknew you and predestined you and called you and justified you, he glorifies you. So that's like a whole thing. All those things are guaranteed to happen. It's the same group of people that's being discussed. Look, look at verse 31. This is how this is supposed to affect, affect us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, we look at that theologically. We understand that. And, and this is one of the things that I suggest that everybody do when it comes to any of these things. Just read the Bible. Read it from beginning to end. And as you read the Bible, you see these theological truths worked out all through the Old Testament in all kinds of Bible stories. You see them worked out in Samson's life. You see them worked out in every story. And, and you understand, am I a robot that makes no real choices in life? No. Read the Bible. It's very obvious that that is not true. Is God sovereign? Is God the one who works in, the heart, in, in a person's heart? Yes. So let me tell you, how does God call you into salvation. You know, Peter explains that. See, this is what it says in 2 Peter 1.3. It says that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything you need for your life, God has given you. When we read the rest of this passage, um, Paul's going to talk about this. This theology, he's going to explain to the Corinthians. Everything you need, God has given you for your life and for godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You want to know how God calls people? Um, God doesn't just like do some random thing and you have nothing to do with it and you don't say anything about it. What God does is God opens up your heart to see who Jesus is. God calls us through his glory and through his excellence. See, some people, when they look at Jesus, they hate him, they reject him, they don't want him. So they say no to Jesus. Could they say yes? Yes, they could. Do they say yes? No, because they don't want to. 
And so what God does is he opens up the eyes of our heart. We look at Jesus. We hear the gospel message. And God allows us to see it as the beautiful, amazing thing that he is. Who we are, sinners lost. Who Jesus is. This amazing person that died for us and loves us. And then what do we do? We choose Jesus. Why? Because God opened our heart. Now, when you think about Acts, Acts uh, chapter 16, talking about Lydia, Paul preaches, and what does God do? He opens her heart to receive the gospel. Um, just read scripture. It is everywhere. It is all over the place. Paul preaches, and as many as were appointed to salvation believe. This is what God does. And so these are things we should wrestle with, and sometimes we're troubled because we don't actually understand what God is saying, and sometimes we're troubled because we don't like what God is saying. But just read the whole Bible, it'll all make sense, and you will get to the place that you love it, that you embrace it, that you are thankful for it, that you are encouraged by it. And here's the amazing thing. Paul's writing to a church with all kinds of problems, and what does he do? He teaches them the theology about their salvation. Let's look at the second thing we're going to see here. We are called into God's grace. This is amazing. It just says in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Um, remember uh, First Peter, that he's given us everything we need um, by the knowledge, the true knowledge of him who called us. And here we see Paul's just telling them the same stuff. You've been enri- enriched in speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul writes to them, and he just says, you are righteous, you are holy, you are saints. God saved you, and God has poured out his grace in your life. He's given you everything that you need. Now, grace for Paul is amazing. Paul talks about grace, and at the beginning of every book he writes, at the end of every book he writes, Every single one starts with God's grace. God's grace is huge in Paul's life. When he was physically struggling and he was feeling overwhelmed and he was begging God, saying, God, I'm sick. I have this ailment. Please help me. And God said no. And then he prayed, God, I I cannot live with this. I need you to take this away. And God said no. And then he prayed again and he just said, God, please, I can't take this. And God says no. And Paul looks at that whole situation and he says, I am so thankful that God said no because in my weakness, God's power is made known. God pours out his grace in my life. God's grace was so valuable that Paul said, I'm glad I suffer and I need God's grace because he's given it to me. God's grace is everywhere in Paul's writing. And so it's this powerful thing that gives us everything that we need that enriches us. That we know truth. We know what's right. And here's the other thing that God, that, that the testimony about Christ is confirmed in their life. Paul just says, you, God has poured out his grace in your life. He's told you everything you need to know. He's put these spiritual gifts among you to give you everything that you need. And you have confirmed God's grace has allowed um, your salvation to be confirmed. See, here's the crazy thing. When you become a Christian, that is confirmed. It's confirmed by how you respond. How do we know these people were saved? Because they're writing to Paul saying, Paul, what should I do? And when he tells them, they do it. See, what makes a person saved is a regenerated heart. That's what Ephesians 2 talks about. It is not taking a theology test and getting all the answers right. That does not save you. Being born into the right family does not save you. It is when God opens up your mind to receive Christ, and then the Bible tells us that God gives you a new heart, that you are spiritually regenerated, you are spiritually made alive, and then God gives you spiritual gifts, the supernatural enabling of the Holy Spirit. Paul's going to talk about this in 1 Corinthians, that your body is the house of the Holy Spirit. 
And then the house of the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit helps you know what's true. So as you read scripture, as you hear various things, you know what's true. You have a desire to do what's right. And so God's regeneration impacts your sanctification. Your spiritual standing impacts your practice. Because when God makes you new and gives you a new heart, that changes how you live. But the behavior has no impact on your standing before God. And so they're confirmed. Their testimony is powerful, and God has given them every gift. It's amazing that Paul says he's thankful. He says, I give thanks. When you think about the Corinthian church, you could say, why would Paul be thankful for them? They're knuckleheads that are doing all the wrong things. But, God, but Paul's just saying, I'm so thankful because of where they came from and, and how far God has taken them. And, yes, they have a long way to go. I was thinking about this book that was written. It's called Growing Up Christian. And it talks about the struggles of growing up in a Christian home. And I don't want to minimize that. It's challenging. Uh, there's a, a pastor's son I know that wrote this book about the miseries of growing up in a pastor's home and how terrible it was and how hard it was for him. And I just got to tell you, <laughs> when I read that, um, it's, it's the son of a famous pastor, a celebrity pastor who's a faithful guy who loves the Lord. So... Uh, he grew up in this home with a faithful guy, teaches God's word, has a heart for God, who in this home with these parents that prayed for him and encouraged him and tried to help him in his life. And he didn't grow up with any financial struggles. He was the kid of a celebrity pastor. And he's writing a book, Wah! I grew up in a Christian home and my dad was a pastor. And I just think, man... I think about all the people who grew up in homes where they were physically abused, where they were molested by their parents, where nobody prayed for them, nobody encouraged them, nobody tried to help them. They grew up ignorant of what God says. And you're going to write a book whining about growing up in a pastor's home. Um, the truth is that in one sense, uh, people who grow up <laughs> may have way more problems than that guy. And they may be spiritually way farther ahead because of where they came from. You know, the Bible tells us that to whom much is given, much is required. You know, so Paul's thankful for these believers. And I want to just end this morning by talking about this, that God has called us for eternity. Um, salvation is not for a brief moment on this earth. If you pray to receive Christ and you're saved today and then you lose your salvation tomorrow, that's not salvation. Salvation is something that encompasses today and between now and the end, but no saved person can lose their salvation. Like when you read that list in Romans, the same people that he foreknew and then all the things in between, he glorified. There's no exit ramp for people who are Christians. If God saves you, he's going to take you to the end. And this is how he encourages this church. He says, who will, verse 8, sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our salvation is based on the work of God, the calling of God, and God's sustaining power. Now, here's the thing that's challenging. God calls us into fellowship with his son. See, some people think that eternal security means that people who are not really saved are saved. So they look at a person who grows up in church. They remembered when they prayed a prayer. And then that person lives their life, and they come to the place that they say, hey, I'm not a Christian, or nothing in their life reflects that they know Christ. And people uh, misunderstand, and they think, oh, no, you don't lose your salvation. So this person was a pastor, and then they said, actually, I've thought a lot about it and decided I'm not a Christian anymore. Well, he's still saved, because once God saves somebody, he always saves him. No. John tells us sometimes people go out because they were never really of us. And so the thing is, is that when God regenerates you, when he changes your heart, when he gives you a heart for him, that doesn't go away. That's what God sustains. does not mean we don't struggle with sin. 
Doesn't mean that people don't have struggles and difficulties. But if God saved you, you are going to get all the way there because that's what salvation means. Um, There's all kinds of verses that we could look to in that. But God saves us, he says it there and all over the place, and there's lots more coming in 1 Corinthians. As we think about today, I want to take a moment, and I want to just celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you have your cups, get them. This is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper is the work of Jesus, what God did to save us through Christ. And uh, this is in Matthew, and Jesus says this, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. This is right before Jesus grows, goes to the cross, and this, this bread represents the body of Jesus. They're about to see him be crucified, and on the cross, he is going to bear the sins of the world. For you and I, we are sanctified. We are saints. We're going to end up in heaven, not because of us, but because of Jesus. And when we eat this bread, that is what we remember, is that Jesus is the one who saved us. Let's eat the bread. And he took the cup when he had given thanks, and he gave it to them and said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus died. His blood was shed for you and for me. That's the basis of our salvation. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we think about it. We remember it. It's part of what helps us have this resolve not to be sinful, to live reverently, to honor the Lord. That is a serious thing. We understand the seriousness of that, but we don't look to our works or our behavior as the basis of salvation. Let's drink. Lord, we thank you for your work on the cross. God, for your power in saving us. Lord, these are challenging things to think about, and yet they're so precious. They impact the way we see life, the way we think about people, the way that we think about ourselves. Lord, the way that we think about you. We realize that salvation is your work and that no person ever gets any credit. You get all the glory. Lord, we look at ourselves, we look at each other. We have no idea why you would want to save us, but we are so amazed by your love that you do save us. And God, I just thank you that you've given us things like the Lord's Supper, that we can take these practical elements and that we can think about your work, what you've done for us. God, help us to live in light of who you are in your name. Amen.